This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, we have been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we are still in that study. The study is titled, A Beautiful Mess, because that's exactly what the church in Corinth was, a beautiful mess. And Paul has been instructing them what it means to be Christians in that culture. The book of Acts, in Acts 18, there we go. In Acts 18, we have a record of Paul's planting the church in Corinth. You know, Corinth was a tough place to try to plant a church. In fact, it was so difficult and so scary that we read that God had to appear to Paul to encourage him not to quit and run. He must have thought, this is such a dark, difficult place. Maybe there's some place I could go that would be better received. He had to have been toying with maybe giving up and moving on. And in Acts 18, is Acts 18 missing? Okay, well, maybe it is. Well, in Acts 18, we read this. One night, starting in verse 9, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. He said, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack you or harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. What kind of a place would it take to scare a guy like Paul? It must have been kind of dark, scary place. Now, what you may not know is that on a later visit to the city of Corinth, Paul wrote another letter to another church. We call it the book of Romans. Did you know that Paul wrote Romans from Corinth? It kind of makes you pause. He was in Corinth. He was watching that city and that culture as a backdrop when he wrote this. In Romans 1, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but they, in their thinking, became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, wow, does that sound like Corinth? <laughs> they, were, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Paul wrote that as he was watching the city of Corinth. He was trying to plant a church in a culture that was nothing but hostile to the gospel. Romans would have thought that the message of Christ was 
um, it was ridiculous. Uh, wait, you worship a Jewish criminal who died on a cross? Woohoo! Talk about losers! Romans would have scoffed and laughed. People were disgusted by the stories they heard. Aren't those the people that eat the flesh and drink the blood of their follower? That's just sick. They scoffed at the intolerance of Christians. Corinth was a port city. All kinds of people come through. And yet these Christians seem to act like they are the ones who have the right way. In fact, Celsus, uh, Celsus was a second century uh, enemy of the gospel. Uh, the, the church father Origen actually wrote and re rebuted, uh, re rebuttaled Celsus' teaching. But Celsus wrote, he said of the, of the Christians, he says, they alone say that they know the right way to live. You can hear the sarcasm. Oh, one way. They're too narrow. Who do they think they are? Why do you have it right and everyone else is wrong? Later, Tacticus, uh, a, a Roman historian, said, these Christians are haters of all mankind. They're not happy about anything. They're not patriotic. They don't go to the, to the festivals. And you know why. They don't go to the city games. They don't participate in public events. They are just narrow, intolerant, bigoted, small-minded haters. That was the culture of Corinth. Sound at all familiar? So, how is it that a church can interact with a culture that's so antagonistic. What does the church do? How does it respond? Well, I guess there are polarized options, aren't there? And we already know that Paul is writing to Corinth to correct these polarizations. On the one side, you've got people who are saying, Hey, the meat is offered to idols. It means nothing. We know that idols are nothing. And so we go. Now, it is one thing to eat meat offered to an idol. We already know, Paul has made it clear, that meat is harmless. But it's quite another thing to actually go into the, the worship experiences of those pagan gods and participate and eat the meat. That's not harmless. So should they, on one side, engage completely like there's no difference, we're just one of the group, and, and they're distinctiveness gets lost. On the flip side, you've got those who are wanting to separate from everything, not be a part of anything for fear that it could go wrong somehow, somewhere. And so Paul is again addressing both of these extremes and what he's going to draw for us, what he's going to encourage us to do is to find a balanced response because he is not writing to just Corinth. He's writing to Montgomery County He's writing to the U.S. He's writing to us. Our passage today, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 14. And the first little division for your notes is simply this. He's going to talk about dining with devils. And he's going to give the tale of two tables as an illustration. We're going to start reading in verse 14. He says this, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. 
I speak to sensible people. You judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. What a poignant passage to be at as we take communion. And what he's saying is, hang on, I want you guys to understand this. You know what communion means. You know that as we come to the Lord's table and as we take these elements, we are demonstrating that we are indeed, literally, spiritually, a part of these. We take his blood and his body as our own. We are part of him. He says, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? It's interesting. There's more than one kind of communion. We just took the Lord's table, but it's not the only kind of communion that exists. Israel had a type of communion. As the, as the animals were offered and people participated in that offering, that sacrifice counted for them, and some of them partook of some of that meat. When, they, when the sacrifices were offered, they were participating. There was a type of communion in their process. He goes on, he says, Do I mean then that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans that are offered to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in, the, in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. As we said, eating meat that's been offered to an idol, harmless. Attending pagan worship and participating, not harmless. Now, if you'd like to do some more study, uh, some of you want to look deeply into this, uh, you could look up John 6, verses 47 to 58, about the cup of thanksgiving and what it meant for Jesus to offer himself, or Deuteronomy 32, 17, and Psalm 106. And if you didn't get that tough, <laughs> no. You guys do know that, 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 that these are available online as well. So you can watch the video and, uh, or listen to the podcast and catch up. But what he's saying is that when we take these elements, we're participating. Did it ever occur to you, he says, that when you take elements in that setting, you're participating with them? But we're not prone to that, are we? We have no problem taking the things in our society that are good, that we enjoy, but we're not getting sucked into that materialistic mindset. We're not affected by that self-centered focus, that individualistic nature, that me-first mindset. No, there's no chance that we catch any of that. We just like driving the car that we like, living in the home that we like, sitting in the power recliner I like using my wonderful golf clubs when I like. And we could go on and on. Is there anything wrong with any of those things? Absolutely not. And yet Paul says there is a place, there is a spot where we no longer just are eating meat offered to idols. We are participating in the worship of a false God. 
Who's the false god of our culture? <coughs> Me. Me. By the way, if you had to sum it up in a word or two, how would you describe God's response when his people worship false gods? Did he have a problem with that? It's exactly why he said their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. This is no small thing, he says. Next, that's why he says, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I guess we just have to ask ourselves, how are things going? Would you like to, tr would you like to try this with God being angry with you? You want to give that a whirl? Of course not. So what is it that he wants? Some legalistic outward kind of obedience? No, he's looking for a heart that says, you're first in my life. Whatever that means. The next division here. Is it market meat or idle meat? Verses 20, sorry, in verse 23. Let's read on. He says, and as we get into this, I guess I just want to make sure you understand. He has just addressed those who um, are too casual about idolatry. They're just, just no big deal. I don't get stressed. You know, just kind of roll with it because it's all okay. With God's okay. He's already addressed those people who are way too casual about idolatry. And what he says is they need to pay attention to their personal relationship with God. Now he's about to talk to those who are way too sensitive about their conscience. They're going to the opposite end. Because believe it or not, the way to correct for being too casual is not to be too sensitive. It's the different side of the same problem. He says this. Quote, and now again, it's in quotes. I think he's quoting them, one of their little sayings, their mottos. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, he says, but not everything is constructive. You see, there is something that trumps, and that goes way back to another message, doesn't it? There's something that trumps our freedom. And that is, well, what is it? What are those principles? What would cause us, what would be more important than having the freedom to do or exercise our rights? It's not just what is allowed versus what's not. How many religious organizations are out there? How many churches do you know where they give in to the temptation? Just give me a list. Give me a list of the do's and the don'ts. What's okay, what's not? Let's just get this settled, because I'm tired of this. I, couldn't, I wasn't quite sure what you're saying, Pastor. Is it good or not? And often we come up with these external rules, this list of legalized points to check off. What he says is the value is found on the inside in, in our motivation. That's what he says in verse 24. He says, it's pretty simple. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. How many times have we seen that represented in the New Testament? Jesus himself teaching that to seek the better of someone else first is what it means to be his follower. 
So he says, start on the inside. What would help them? And if we say, well, how in the world would I know? Then that's where the problem lies. How can my car assist you? How can my lawnmower, my John Deere tractor? Which, by the way, I want to point out, just because some of you were judging me last time, talk about my tractor. It has no reverse. <laughs> I want you to think about that for a minute. <laughs> Hop off, push it out. Yeah, okay. So, okay. But I'm still thankful for it. How can my tractor, how can my chainsaw, how can my home, how can my recipe, how can my time, my schedule, my calendar, how can it, how can it help you? I know why we're tempted to stop that, because our lives are chock full. We're afraid. I'm afraid to put one more thing on my calendar. Hey, when are you free? Are you kidding me? A week from next year. And yet, I must ask myself, wait a minute, would this do you good? Let me see what I can do. He goes on. He says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions. Questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. What he's saying to those who tend to be oversensitive is stop asking so many questions. In fact, one of the reasons why it's okay to eat the stuff wherever you find it is because it all came from the same place. God made it to be good. Golf is good. Hiking is good. Swimming is good. Reading is good. Walking is good. Whatever. What do you enjoy doing? All these things come from him. They're intended to be enjoyed. He says, so don't get distracted with a bunch of external legalistic questions. Eat whatever's offered. He goes on with some very specific instruction. Now, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. Okay, I can buy the meat in the market. What if one of these pagan people, my neighbor, my, 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 my non-church neighbor, he's not a believer. I mean, there's beer in their fridge. Okay? Or whatever. You know, like, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, and they invite us for dinner. What are we going to do? Paul says, go and eat what's set before you. See, sometimes we're th we, we get this kind of weird idea that to really be holy, I need to pull away from all those pagan people because they're a bad influence on me. Well, if they're a bad influence on you, you should fix that. But I'm going to suggest that pulling away from them won't fix the kind of person you are. Let the Spirit of God deal with that and engage them. He says, you go and you eat and you don't ask any questions. You don't pull away from the lost. You don't pull away from the lost. You take every opportunity accept every invitation. Now it gets a little complicated, and we're not going to spend a lot of time because our time is short this morning. Now he's going to deal with some kind of like uh, other difficulties. It's you in the marketplace, buy it and eat it. It's you that's been invited, just go and eat and enjoy. Uh, okay, well, what about, verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, you catch the tone, right? Somebody else is thinking there's a problem here. 
then don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience, meaning you don't want, not your conscience, it's the, you don't want to offend them. You're looking for their good. So like, uh, hey, by the way, I mean, I got this meat, but this is the bad stuff. I mean, you know, I know it's, there's nothing wrong with it. But, but for your sake, if, if you seem to think that there's a problem, in fact, he goes on, he says, I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I, part, if I take part in the meal with, thanks, with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Do you see clearly where Paul lands? We have freedom. You don't get to judge me. God sees my heart. I'm enjoying this with thankfulness. I know idols are nothing. And yet, and yet, if someone else is going to have a problem with it, it is, it's offending, it's causing someone else some question, what Paul says is, I have more to lose by eating than to gain. And because it's, it's normal for me to not exercise my rights, I may abstain rather than cause you a problem. That's how Paul says love behaves. Now our third division today, and that's that missional mandate, starting in verse 31. You know, Paul has addressed those who are too casual about idolatry, those who are too sensitive about their own conscience, but now he's going to address those who are too inconsistent in their application of Jesus' mission. This is what he says. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. At first reading, it sounds almost like he's undoing everything he's been saying. Oh, you're saying we're free, and yet now you're going to do, you're trying to make everybody happy. What he's saying is, at each personal opportunity, every time there's a chance, if I can give in on my rights so that I can help you, I'm willing to. To the Jews, one extreme, religious extreme. To the Greeks, another extreme. And not church of God. Because you know how church people can be. It's just a little, just a little odd. You see, there's something that arches far above these freedoms and liberties or lack thereof. Something that comes way before that. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, are you one of these that's tempted to think that what you do today is sacred? What happens on Monday, that's secular? I mean, you do it on your radio. I mean, right? You push, you've, got, you've, got, you've got like Christian buttons on your radio and then secular buttons. Right? We tend to think that the rest of our life works that same way too. You probably don't think of your job as Christian ministry. <laughs> it's the thing that's attacking your Christian ministry. You endure that so you can do Sunday. We tend to think that this stuff, as a pastor, oh, what well, we do, now that's all spiritual. Yeah, right. There is no sacred and no secular. It's all from God, and it's all to be used for Him. You can vacation for God. 
I'm going to try that sometime <laughs> soon this year. You can serve for God. You can work for God. You can nap for God. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Pastor Nick and Pastor Jim and I, we were joking this past week or two. Okay, we got a little uptight trying to make sure everything was covered as we start this. Just a little uptight. I got to tell you, like, if I pull off to the side and say, you know, I'm just going to sit. Or you know what? I'm going to cut my back lawn. <laughs> it could be really glorifying to God when I'm saying, you know, you got this. You got this. I'm going to finish my book. He says, whatever you do, what is it that you do that you're tempted to think somehow God doesn't care about? There is nothing. He's interested in all of it. You know, when something works the way the inventor intended for it to work, it glorifies the inventor. When you get in a car and it takes you where you want to go, you say, thank you, Mr. Ford. Not just him, but gotcha. You know, you walk into a room and you hit a switch and the light bulb lights up and you say, thanks, Mr. Edison. His idea and still blessing my life today. You, you whip out your device and you say, thank you, Steve Wozniak. That's not who you were thinking of? Okay. Or Steve Jobs. If it works the way they intended, they get glory. What Paul is saying is when we live our lives for God, to his glory, it's working. That's what he intended for us to do. We shine for him. Look at that. It works perfect. And so, as we close, I want to make sure that we see his missional mandate. This is for us, Crossroads. This is for us, Montgomery. This is for the church of God. What is it that Jesus left behind for us to do? Paul, our apostle, speaking to our church in this dark culture, says the, the mission mandate is this. Build up believers. Love on them. Encourage them. Go out of your way for them. Study with them. Support and encourage them. Do whatever it takes to help a believer grow. Reach and win the lost. Even if people are going to wonder why you're hanging with that weird bunch. Even if some of what they say or do does make us feel a little uncomfortable. But if we have a choice to sit, sometimes the best thing we can do, by the way, you got a chance to sit with some Christians or go over here and sit with the pagans, and you look at the Christians and say, hey, over here. And they say, well, why is he sitting with them? No, that's not what happens. You know what happens? They go, that's awesome. That's so cool. Good for them. Daniel, yeah. So we're going to let a few Mormons scare us away? No way. We're at First Friday. Hey, we should go over there and talk to them. Yeah, let's go. Huh? Sure. Reach the lost. Win the lost. Who is it that you can extend yourself to even this week? If you can't think of anybody, then that's a different prayer request. God, you've got to open up my life. You've got to open up my sphere. But if they're there, you, know, you don't understand, Mike, I tried. Okay, so now we're praying for a new opportunity. Reach and win the lost. And then lastly, 
glorify God. But guess what? That one's easy. In fact, I want to suggest that when you do the first and you do the second, the third happens. What Paul is saying is, you guys, Corinth, this dark culture with all these things going on, you're getting so caught up in the things that don't matter. Focus on these two things. Build up each other. Reach and win the lost. And God is glorified. The question is, do we believe that, church? Then let's make it happen. Let's pray. With every head bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, we don't want this moment to go by without inviting you to do just that. We took the Lord's table and we remember and celebrate the fact that He died for us. That means He died for you too. When Jesus hung on the cross, He made the payment for my sin and for yours. What would stop you from accepting Him as your personal Savior today? If you can't think of anything, then it's, today's the day. Jesus, I believe that you died for me, and I'm trusting you as my Savior. If you're making that decision today, please don't leave here today without telling someone. Meet one of us at the door, but let us know. Ah, but if you're a believer, we need to know that Jesus' mandate applies to us today. He sent us on a mission, and it still applies, church. We're to rally around each other and build each other up and then go and reach the world with the gospel. We got plenty of pagans to go around. Will we love them enough to go out of our way to reach them? If we will do that, God is glorified, which is what we want. Lord Jesus, cause us to know what it means to be on mission with you. That we are still carrying out the, the instructions you gave us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Teach us what it means for us to be faithful right here in our community. In spite of the self-centeredness, in spite of the darkness, teach us not to be intimidated, but instead to go with a sense of courage and boldness because your gospel is transforming in his power. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org